This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. And welcome everybody. I see we're now live on Facebook and attendees are starting to join and panelists are here. So welcome to the second day of our global international workshop on CEDA and sexual orientation and gender identity. This is, this is the second day and today we're going to be looking at a whole series of kind of digging down into various human rights um, specifically specific human rights issues and sexual orientation and gender identity in the context of CETA. And we have a really rich array of panelists from all over the world. So we're just so delighted that everyone could be here today. Before I turn over to the expert panelists to hear their, their thoughts, uh, just some housekeeping. This is being live streamed on Facebook. We would encourage you also to tweet about it, to Facebook about it, to Instagram about it, to TikTok about it, to get the word out there that this is happening. And for those participating, please do feel free to use the chat and Q&A function to ask questions, make comments, interventions. And at the end, there'll be lots of time for um, Q&A and discussion with the, with the panelists, but I would just encourage you throughout their, their um, conversation to, to um, make those interventions. So I have the honor of chairing the first panel this afternoon, and it is looking at two really important socioeconomic rights in relation to sexual orientation and gender identity, and that's health and education. So without further ado, I'm going to turn over to Alexa Moore. And just before I do, Alexa Moore is a trans rights activist working for Transgender Northern Ireland uh, and working in trans rights activism in Northern Ireland, focusing in on the rights of trans youth and the inclusion of trans young people or youth in youth movements around the world. And they've been uh, wonderful doing so many just reading Alexa's profile this morning was just really awe-inspiring for all the amazing work they're doing um so without further ado I will turn over to Alexa thank you so much um and I just want to say like thank you um uh, to yourself Megan uh for for chairing this and Catherine for inviting me here um and providing a platform to discuss the issues facing trans women in health and education in particular um right now so for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Alexa Murr. I'm one of the directors of, of Transgender NI, which is a human rights organization um, which supports and advocates for trans communities in Northern Ireland. We run the Belfast Trans Resource Centre, which is a dedicated trans community space in South Belfast. I believe it's one of the only dedicated trans spaces in the whole of the UK and Ireland. So it's actually a pretty big deal um, and, and we're really proud of it. And we've also actually been to CEDAW. Um, I went to CEDAW um, with Transgender and I in 2019. Um, and it was it was my first kind of experience interacting with, with international human rights institutions um, and really interesting stuff. But I mean, it's not a pretty picture in the UK when we're talking about trans rights. I'm gonna be completely honest. You know, the human rights of trans people of all genders have been under consistent and persistent attack for at least the past five years, especially since the, the Gender Recognition Act consultation was announced and, and proceeded to be dithered and delayed on for, for several years. This culture war has particularly been targeted at 
trans young people, at trans women and, and trans feminine communities. Um, in the media and in the kind of political class, you know, trans women are portrayed as dangerous, predatory even. Um, and, and, you know, the rights of trans women to live and exist peacefully, to enjoy access, equal access to public space, um, to be free to work and able to access care. They're not being met and in many ways they're actually being regressed um, in the UK. As recently as last weekend, Stonewall's Diversity Champions program uh, came under a pretty coordinated attack from anti-trans actors in the media, the EHRC, um, and from the actual Minister for Women and Equalities. Um, this Diversity Champions program enables so many LGBTQ plus people to feel safe and respected and supported at work and gives them an avenue to raise issues while ensuring that their employers are educated on how to support LGBTQ plus staff. Um, and again, it's it's under coordinated attack from not just the media, not just from the, the kind of right wing political class, but also from our national human rights institution in, in Britain. Um, it's an attempt not just to push trans people to the margins, but to push back on wider LGBTQ plus inclusion in society, in the workplace, and simply to push back on our right to uh, live and exist in the world. And, you know, these human rights abuses are, are quite, uh, quite pronounced in some specific areas, um, and arguably they're no more egregious um, than in how trans people are treated when they're accessing healthcare. It's obviously one of the big themes for this panel. It is, to be honest, a statement of fact uh, for me to say that trans people's right to access healthcare and right to non-discrimination in health services is simply not being met. Waiting lists stretch on for years and years. And in Northern Ireland, the Adult Gender Identity Service actually ground to a halt for three years before beginning to take new patients again quite slowly a few months ago. And whenever we talk about waiting lists, whenever we talk about kind of small services that are understaffed, underfunded, uh, we do have that kind of uh, that that almost tendency to focus on, okay, how much money can we throw at this service? How much staff can we throw at this service? Do we just need to train people a little bit more? Um, and those are absolutely vital aspects of the issues in, in gender uh, affirming healthcare, but they're not the whole picture. And to look at the whole picture, you actually have to look at the system and the way that the health service views trans identity. Um, our trans healthcare system is set up to view and treat trans identity as a disorder. We are assessed by a psychiatrist who thinks they know their gender better than we do. Uh, we are asked often horrible and invasive questions about our sexual orientation and sexual activity, including um, you know, young people being asked about their sexual activity. Uh, we are asked about our past abuse and trauma. Uh, we are forced to, quote, live in role. Um, so wear gender-appropriate clothing, pick a gender-appropriate name, and come out to every single person in our lives, regardless of the harm that that may subject us to. These services have no respect for the autonomy of trans people, and they are not in line with international best practice or human rights standards. They push gender roles onto us, and then trans people get blamed by anti-trans actors for being hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine. Uh, they insert these kind of artificial waiting times through their long and kind of stretched out invasive assessment and arbitrary timelines. They breach disability rights law by preventing access to care or placing increased barriers for disabled and neurodiverse people to access transition related care. One example of this is that under 18s in gender identity services must 
go through an autism assessment before even getting a whiff of puberty blockers or any kind of gender affirming treatment. They also must go through CAMS, which is our Children and Adolescent Mental Health Service, before being referred to COI, our Under 18's Gender Identity Service. Again, framing all of this as a mental health issue, as a disorder. Trans people of all ages must also demonstrate, quote, stable psychosocial health, um, which I'll be completely honest with you, that's a high bar given the discrimination and abuse and vitriol that trans communities kind of experience on a daily basis. And it's also a high bar given the fact that trans folks actually can't access the healthcare that would generally improve our mental health. Um, and, you know, these requirements are particularly impactful on trans women. They affect trans people of all genders, but they have specific implications for how trans women, trans women sorry, um, move through society and live their lives. Um, we experience disproportionate levels of street harassment, sexual assault and abuse, uh, hate crimes and, and so on. Uh, and by forcing people to come out before they're ready, forcing people to have this kind of real life experience or living in role um, and, and forcing us into these highly gendered and outdated roles, um, the services are actually putting us directly in harm's way. They're, you know, they're, they're by telling trans women that no, actually you must socially transition and tell every single damn person in your life that you're trans before you even get a sniff of hormones, whether it be your teachers or parents or housemates or employer or lecturers or colleagues or whoever, that's so much pressure to put on someone. And it is a breach of their rights to, to private and family life. And once again, not in line with, with how things are done on a global scale, with the moves that the World Health Organization has made in terms of declassifying um, gender identity disorder as a um, as something as a, in the mental health section of the international classification of diseases and instead moving it to the sexual health section. So you can see here that actually the UK is just, it's simply lagging behind um, in terms of where the rest of the world is on this issue. And still, and yet, this system is too liberal and too open for the anti-trans actors in the world who wish to see, you know, arbitrary age limits placed on um, care for young people or for young trans people who are pushing for actually more invasive interrogation, more gatekeeping, um, less bodily autonomy and less person-centered care within these services. As always, trans communities are under sustained attack under false pretenses. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's the constant idea that, oh, you know, trans kids can just go and they can get hormones whenever they want. Trans kids are being pumped full of hormones. And this is simply not true. Um, but it is given credence by the medical establishment, by the media and by the political class um, who, who, you know, kind of allow these, these anti-trans actors to spread misinformation about how trans people actually realistically access healthcare today in the UK. And this is, again, despite international best practice and human rights standards, fully eclipsing the UK on these issues. The UK government would like to portray itself as a leader, as a global leader in LGBT rights and equality. And actually, it's going backwards. We're, we're getting to the point where the UK is exporting transphobia, is exporting um, this kind of regressive anti-trans ideology to other parts of the world. Now, I could wax lyrical about gender affirming healthcare all day. I could I could talk to you about it for an hour, but there are many, many other issues, um, particularly for trans women in healthcare. Uh, 
for instance, appropriate invites to cancer screenings, access to sexual health testing, records management and confidentiality, um, old age care, which I personally think is a ticking time bomb that we're not prepared for um, in our care homes. Um, and, and, you know, um, so many other issues, cultural competency in, in mainstream services more broadly that also need to be addressed. Um, there are also many what would be described as women's health issues that need to proactively include trans men and non-binary people who need to access those services. So when we're thinking about, um, you know, abortion and family planning services, trans men need to access those, um, breast and cervical cancer screenings, um, access to period products and so on. Um, we do need to take a holistic view uh, for caring uh, of caring for and, and supporting trans people of all genders. And sorry, my throat's a little bit, a little bit gone, but to be honest, I do believe that that holistic view must start in education. And, and you know, I think CEDAW is in agreement with me there as well, given that in the past they've given the UK a slap on the wrist for the woefully inadequate provision of appropriate and uh, sorry, the woefully inadequate provision of RSE in Northern Ireland. Um, and there was a kind of paragraph included in the 2019 Executive Formation Act, which mandated um, the provision of appropriate and comprehensive RSE through the incorporation of elements of the CEDAW report into domestic law, which was a really good step forward, or at least it would have been. <laughs> if, you know, did, did the Northern Ireland executive and the relevant ministers pay any attention to this? Did they do what they were legally obliged to do and rule out appropriate RSE and commission abortion services? Well, of course they didn't. Why would they? Why would, why would uh, Peter Weir or Robin Swan follow the law instead of dithering and, and delaying as they have been for the past year or two? And, you know, the issue of RSE is one that's actually quite close to home for me. You know, I'm, I'm 21. I left school about three years ago um, and I had the privilege of being in one of the 70 percent of Northern Irish schools that invite in an organisation taking an abstinence based approach to relationships and sexuality education. This organisation avoided talking about LGBT lives, identities, bodies and experiences in their entirety, instead opting to tell a room full of teenagers that if they wanted to avoid STIs, they should simply avoid sex, <laughs> which is very useful, uh, I'm sure. Very, very limited information at all was provided about safe and healthy sex and relationships, about consent, about recognising abuse, about contraception, harm reduction and preventative measures outside of abstinence. This was also one of the like first and only introductions I had to RSE through my entire 14 year educational career. We got about one or two one hour sessions in the assembly hall. Um, comprehensive, age appropriate, LGBTQ plus inclusive and evidence based RSE is absolutely imperative. If we want to tackle widespread sexual abuse and harassment, if we want to address rape culture, and if we want to ensure that people are able to recognize unhealthy or unsafe sexual or romantic relationships. But these programs also present an opportunity to educate the wider student body on LGBTQ plus lives, bodies, experiences and identities. They provide an opportunity to address bullying and harassment against queer pupils. Again, something which has been almost entirely untouched by, by successive education ministers. Um, and they also provide the opportunity to begin incorporating queer lives and identities into the curriculum. It can start in RSE, but it needs to go into history, into science, technology, geography, art. 
queer people are everywhere. <laughs> you know, we've contributed to all of these these areas. Um, and they, you know, they need these kids in our schools need to see a commitment to inclusion and supporting all pupils in schools. They need to see themselves represented in the curriculum. Um, and they also need to see actual meaningful legislative change that removes the loopholes that schools currently exist in, which exempts them from many of our equality regulations. Um, and I think that the kind of gendering of schools as a whole is, is, is another issue entirely, uh, but separating our kids and telling them that they're so drastically different that they must be kept separate for the majority of the day based on arbitrary gender markers, it does no one any good, really. And to, to wrap up, I would just like to reflect on, you know, what CEDAW could do to help, you know, how, how does CEDAW fit into this? Uh, and frankly, I think that CEDAW is in a position now where they have a moral obligation to speak out on this. There are many, many well-funded anti-trans actors in the UK who are using trans rights as a wedge issue to attack the wider LGBTQ plus community um, and to attack bodily autonomy and access to reproductive care. We're seeing it in the attack on any on the concept of Gaelic competence. We're seeing it in the attacks on the inclusion of any LGBT issues in RSE. Um, and, and these attacks are framed as feminist or defending women's rights. Um, but, you know, we and the vast majority of feminists and, and women's organizations in Northern Ireland see them for what they are, which is disingenuous, regressive and, and sneaky attacks on human rights for all. Um, CEDAW should be speaking out and making it clear that trans rights and women's rights are not in competition or not in conflict with each other. CEDAW must pay attention to the coordinated assault on trans rights, not just in the UK, but around the world, and the chilling effect this is having on fights for reproductive justice and bodily autonomy more broadly. CEDAW must fight for all women, especially those in the margins. And here in Northern Ireland, we stand united with the feminist movement in our fight for all of our rights. And I want, we want CEDAW to stand with us. Thank you. Thank you, Alexa. It was a very, very wonderful presentation. It was so interesting and fascinating. Just to pick up two things that you were saying, that what's very interesting is also your the holistic approach to the right to health. It's it's not just we need better funding or we all need to take some sensitivity training. It's really taking a step back at the whole structured systems and how do the systems understand and conceptualize gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, the links between them as a way to actually realize the right to health that's not in a way paternalistic or patronizing or reinforcing um, stereotypes. And I think you're, call, you're, you're calling out of the weaponization of both feminism and trans rights to advance what many of us would see as retrogressive um, movements, both in, you can see in the US where they're banning trans women from playing sports, we can see them with the bathroom bill laws, the, um, the, and then you said the rise here of, of just excluding trans women from, femi from feminist spaces. So thank you so much for the intervention. It was, it was so wonderful. And now we're gonna turn to our second speaker who is uh, Marissa Hutchinson. Marissa works for the International Women's Rights Watch Asia Pacific Malaysia Global South. She coordinates the uh, programs on environmental justice and the rights of marginalized groups of women. So the really interesting intersection, which is something I was actually just researching this morning about uh, climate change and women's rights. So Marissa's work is incredibly topical and very, very important. And she's been involved in advocacy with UN mechanisms focusing on gender-based violence and the invisibility of lesbian, bisexual, and queer women. And we're so delighted that she's here this morning, or is it this morning or this evening in your time zone? Whatever time zone you're in, we are delighted that you're here with us. And I will now turn the floor over to you. Thank you. 
Um, firstly, I want to say happy Pride Month to everyone, especially those in the LGBT community as it's June and Pride Month. Um, so Megan did a great job at introducing me, so I don't have to do that. So thank you for that. Um, so what I will jump right in and talk about briefly is ERA. So ERA was established in 1993 um, by a group of women from the Global South and recognizing the potential of the CEDAW convention in terms of implementing the rights of women. That's the work that ERA has taken on. Uh, so within the last, I would like to say 30 years basically. Um, for the advancement of women's rights uh, through the treaty body of CEDAW. So since 1997, we have worked with many NGOs in over 120 countries, and that is actually the focus of our work. So we work very closely on a number of issues ranging from, as Megan said, environmental justice, uh, culture and regression, um, in the multilateral system, interrogating borders and the impacts of women's human rights, uh, women and work, and transforming economics and development. Um, so why CEDAW? First of all, uh, because CEDAW is a very political space at all levels within the national, regional, and global level. And we think that it is a good form of advocacy or a tool of advocacy for women and other marginalized groups. We also think that with its specific focus on women's rights and marginalized communities, that it gives NGOs and also activists an important role to play in terms of the interpretation of the implementation of CEDAW at the national level, which in turn is very effective in terms of their advocacy strategies, but also in terms of the state's obligations to women and marginalized communities. Um, and it's also that uh, CEDAW takes a very intersectional approach to marginalized and vulnerable groups. And it is considered a very effective space in that it counts for the different forms of intersectional discrimination and violence experienced by these communities. And it also allows for a political dialogue, um, which helps in gaining insight on the work that governments do on gender and women's rights and also lack thereof um, at the national level. So when it comes to health and education, there's a specific need to acknowledge that there are basic rights, um, basic and fundamental rights when they're, when and where possible, as we can say, and th that they should be free, affordable and accessible to all. However, these rights in most cases are not afforded to people based on um, their sexual orientation and gender identity, as we know. CEDAW's specific mandate is to ensure that states take appropriate measures to eliminate forms of discrimination against women, girls, and most marginalized communities. And hence the committee has a specific role to play in ensuring that these issues of health and education impacting these gender, gendered and sexual minorities are heard and addressed at the national, regional, and global level. So in terms of the way in which health and education looks or um, is, influence at the CEDAW level or within CEDAW is that, um, so in terms of uh, CEDAW General Recommendation 24, Article 12, which speaks specifically to women in health, which this article was specifically published at the 20th session years ago in 1999. And it takes, again, a specific focus on women in health. 
uh, which requires that states eliminate discrimination against women within their access to healthcare services, particularly in areas of family planning, pregnancy and confinement and during postnatal periods. However, um, within this general recommendation, we could possibly say because it's been here 20 years, who knows, but there's no specific reference even then with regards to LBTQ people or even persons, or even if there isn't that specific term or those terms, there isn't anything that speaks to persons experiencing violence or discrimination based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. We do, as ERA, acknowledge the importance of this specific article as it serves specifically, again, for women and health. However, um, with the article discarding the experiences of people based on their sexual orientation and gender identity, we believe that um, specific provisions um, of spaces like this, um, this space created by Megan and Catherine and Loveday, I probably said it incorrectly, is important. Um, and we're very happy to be here again to discuss this. And however, what I think was more important to mention, um, seeing that that general recommendation article, what is, is not outdated because it's still used. Um, however, with the publication of general recommendation 28, which has a specific, which was adopted firstly, I should say in 2010, but has a specific intersectional approach um, to state obligation, which speaks to the rights of freedom from gender, um, discrimination, violence of um, many groups, inclusive of lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people, is one of the more specific um, general recommendations that can be considered. Um, however, again, uh, we often, what I always think of is that people have their biases, which is fine. And within um, the CEDAW community, I think that it's important that the voices of, in the space created, which, which these voices are present that LGBT people or LBTIQ specific communities are heard. And that bigger issues in terms of the way in which recommendations are written um, within the concluding observations presented is also is in many places in many ways sorry generic and not very specific to the issues the way in which the committee speaks to very broadly and our colleagues at ILGA do a very good job at highlighting the issues that are raised um, during the state reviews however I think what CEDAW committee needs to do a better job at and also in terms of in partnership or in collaboration with organizations, again, like EROR and ILGA and even grassroots organization, um, what they need to do is bring a deeper focus to one more specifically, LBTIQ people as citizens. I think that citizenship is very far removed from these persons. Um, so in, especially like say now in instances of COVID, so we know in some countries like Colombia and Indonesia, persons aren't afforded the opportunity to receive the COVID vaccine and why? Because it's in terms of identification and that is a structural issue in itself. Because um, in, in these countries and others, there's still not the 
um, policies or systems in place for persons to be able to change identifications on their documentation. So hence, at a time like this with COVID, it's a bigger problem for persons to just be safe or be vaccinated because documentation is a problem. Um, another issue I think is in terms of the barriers within the healthcare systems, um, in terms of persons not carrying out their duty of care, which is, we all know is, um, warranted from health professionals. However, they choose to, you know, refuse healthcare due to internalized or other LGBTI um, unconscious biases. Um, in terms of even issues around education, in terms of how youth are seen, especially trans youth, in terms of being bullied by classmates, but also in terms of other forms of discrimination and dismissing of their presence and mobility within classrooms, those are things that more specifically need to be addressed. I think that Again, CDAW does a good job at being intersectional in their approach in terms of recommending um, states in terms of being obligated to the rights of, of, of everyone or everyone under this under their mandate. However, in terms of being more specific on issues is important. Um, I also think that um, similarly to what Alexis said, I think in terms of um, LBTIQ person facing multiple issues, similarly to women, um, the holistic approach is missing and how can that be highlighted within conclude an observation that it makes, that it's clear, it's not very generic as in, you know, lesbian and bisexual and trans women deserve to have health care, like that isn't enough, I think that we have to get to a point of being clear and being more specific about what we want because as we can see with COVID which has exacerbated so many issues that without the specificity of what we want or what communities deserves that these communities you know end up going under more like they suffer more just because that their issues are kind of blanketed when they don't deserve to be because like everyone else they're human um, what is good over the years, again, is that LBTIQ activists has taken up space. But also with COVID now, this isn't the reality of none of the groups or communities that often come to CEDAW. So how can the CEDAW committee account for the rights of LBTIQ people in this time? I think that there's a need for the committee to continue to do their work to support communities in that day spotlight the issues they're dealing with. There have been many issues highlighted throughout the COVID period of just over a year um, from Black Lives Matter to issues around um, gender-based violence. But when will the committee step up and said, well, you know, let's speak to issue of um, trans experiences of people in Colombia or indigenous trans people in Colombia more specifically. I think that, um, yeah, that it just, is a call for the committee to be a bit more forward and do more. I know that the committee is strong on some issues, but when there are communities who feel not represented within certain forums or certain spaces or that their issues again continue to be blanketed, I think that it doesn't give a lot of um, comfort for these people to continue to sit in their issues or to sit in, as we, we, we've been constantly saying during COVID, they're resistant and they're strong, but communities don't need to hear that. They need to hear that 
a lot of times their issues are going to be addressed. <laughs> their issues are being heard and that something is being done. And I don't think that when it comes to the multilateral system that they've done the best job in doing that during this time. And I just want to say again, Iroa acknowledges all the work that CEDAW has done. We work very closely with you and we, we are um, strongly uh, in arms or connected to your work, but we also ask more that you be the eyes and ears and the mouth of our BTI people. Thank you. Thank you, Marissa, for that really passionate call to arms, I guess, uh, to ensure that sexual orientation, gender identity within CEDAW are dealt with with the degree of specificity that we want to see. So it's not just the generic, these women have equal rights, but where where are the inequalities happening? Where is the discrimination being experienced and how is it being manifest? So to diagnose with a degree of precision and specificity so that the remedies that CEDAW committee can propose are equally as um, sophisticated and, and precise. And your, your discussion around COVID and, and sexual orientation, gender identity is also I think really important, highlights something that, the, that we as organizers were talking about was the interconnectedness of equality rights, that rights to identity and documentation are directly impacting on rights to health. And it's really one of the strengths of CEDAW is that it's able to see the connection between rights that are often classically divided such as civil and political and socioeconomic to understand how those those interact and how violations in one spill over to violations in another. So thank you for drawing all those really, really important themes um, out in your presentation. And so now we turn to the last speaker, but by no means the least on uh, our health and education panel. And that's Mel Duffy, who is an assistant professor in sociology and sexuality in the School of Nursing, Physiotherapy and Community Health at Dublin City University. Her research and advocacy focuses on sexual orientation and gender identity experiences of, and the experience of people living their lives in the world they find themselves in. And I've been privileged to get to know Mel through uh, the uh, sexual education forum set up by some of uh, our colleagues and I'm so delighted that she was able to join us today. So without further ado, I will turn the floor over to her. Thank you, Megan. I always feel, you know, last not being least, following two fabulous papers it's about time I went home um I, in a way I, I've been listening to two papers and two things that struck me um I really feel sometimes by saying like as an old dyke one wonders how one survived to come here after marriage equality in Ireland and then after the vote and after the vote was calculated and the uh, proclamation was got through the following day, the, um, the Catholic Church leader uh, from Rome in Ireland turned around and said that the vote was a defeat for humanity. And so in a way, I, it, what I've always been struggling throughout my life with, what is it to be human? Am I not human too? And when we look at what has happened throughout in relation to LGBTQI plus folk within society. It always draws me back to something that Conrad and Schneider had said in the 1980s. And I'm going to read you their quote because it really sits into things that don't change. And one of the things they said that when an institution such as the church, the state, the medical profession 
gains the power and the authority to define deviance. That is to say, what kind of a problem something is, the responsibility for dealing with the problem often comes to that institution. And folk in the LGBTQI community have found themselves subjects of both the church, the state, and the medical profession. And through the state, they've also found themselves subjects through criminality. But the one thing that being a member of the community does that is not comparable in anything I have found with the heterosexual community, which never calls itself a community because they're the norm, is they never have to come out. So constantly from the moment of recognizing yourself as being yourself, first of all, you have to say, I am. And saying I am is the most difficult thing for folk to do. Um, as an older member of the community, I suppose I, I've been an idealist all my life. And I look at young folk and I think, isn't it wonderful? They can say I am. But the question becomes, can they? Because what happens is suicide rates don't go down. The self-harming don't go down. The self-hatred doesn't go down. The abuse of others doesn't stop. And the total erasure of their existence happens through education, through family, through political organs of the state. So why do I say that? I was very struck by, because the other thing is being, I'm an armchair thriller when it comes to politics and nothing like more than um, arguing with the TV over whatever political thing is happening. I am constantly being told by my wife that the TV is not going to answer back. I will probably have a massive heart attack today, it does. But in the meantime, I will still engage with the, the, the TV. And Camilla Harris, upon winning, and because, because, upon gaining the vice presidency of the United States, turned around and say, said, this is wonderful for all women like me. Women who are black, women who are Asian, women who are different. To see somebody in an office representing them. This is who you can make of your life what you wish. And for young, lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, intersex, genderqueer, you know, whatever plus we are, having somebody who represents them in a public space gives hope and gives them an avenue to see. And it reminds me of during the campaign of gender of uh, marriage equality, I was met by this young uh, girl, I think she was about 12, who turned around and said to me, are you lesbian? And I turned around to her and I said, yes. And she turned around and she looked at me and she says, wonderful, I can go home and tell my mother that there's old ones exist too. So I thought, thank you very much. I really hadn't thought of myself as being an old one, but now I know I am an old one and I really appreciate it. But the fact is, she didn't see herself in the future. Because not unless you see the intergenerationality of the LGBTQI community, you will not see yourself. You will not see that you can grow old. I went to a door um, seeking a vote and this elderly man came out and it was a whole 
area I'd been in, this elderly man came out and I, you know, and he said, of course, I'm voting yes. And I turned around to him and I said, being me, I said, will you please put me out of my misery? All of you here have said yes. You are the cohort who everybody was expecting to say no. So what is wrong with you? Right. Because they were all elderly men, right, living in this, in this row of houses. And he looked at me and he started crying. And I thought, oh, sweet Jesus, why can't you keep your mouth shut? And he turned around and he said, I buried too many of my friends because I didn't understand, I didn't know, and I didn't stand up for folk. But I am stopping now, and so are all of us. We belong to a men's shed, and we've all stated, yes, we will. And that is the beauty of aging, is being able to look back and say, where do I want to make changes? But when you're young, we cannot and we should not expect the young generation to go through what some of us went through to be able to look back and said, how did I get here? Why am I still alive? Because statistically, I, maybe I shouldn't be. So that, in a way, when I think about it, it's covered in politics. It's covered in belief systems. It's covered in family. You know, family for young people, family who embrace who they are, irrespective of who they are, allows people to flourish. But families who have expectations of what you should be, and you must sit within that box, is where trying to fit becomes extremely difficult and where the mental health service begins to take an avenue into your life. And this becomes problematic for me because I was born in the era where to be me was to be mentally ill. And some would say that I never left that era, but we won't go there. So, but it was the notion of, I could be declared unsound, an inability to make decisions, having others to do so for me, and then wondering if I'd ever gain my ability to do that again. And I'm always fearful that the, what I would call the focus, the light that is put upon mental health and young people of the community is a very dangerous thing because it states that there's something maybe not quite right about us. Maybe that, you know, given a chance, they'll get to intervene and they get to say what type of person I am. And we don't focus on quality of life very much. We focus on the negatives about us. We focus on looking for more funding for mental health. I'm not saying we shouldn't do, but what I'm saying is we should really have a, a dialogue that is a proper balancing act between the quality of life that we want that young folk want to achieve for themselves. And really, I suppose I'm railing with the mantra being pride and wishing everybody a happy pride month is nothing about us without us. That constantly others making decisions, whether that's in the classroom, whether that's in the universities, whether that's, you know, wherever it is. And I was so engaged in Alexa's notion that, you know, RSE is still not taking account of people. I always think it's very easy to run the flag up a pole. It really is in, God, look how wonderful we are. We've just run a flag up a pole. Well, that's great, but 
you know, when the flag comes down, even when the flag is up there, it's meaningless for a lot of people because what's engaged in the ground is not that equality. It's not that diversity. It is the notion of, you know, if I am a trans woman, do I have to be like the next trans woman? Can I not be different to the next trans woman? Do I have to be the same? And it's that notion of sameness that really engages us in wanting to scream and saying, no, we are different. We will cohabitate, we'll be different and we'll enjoy our difference and our diversity because we are different. Because if we were the same, we'd be goddamn boring. We wouldn't be here because we wouldn't have to hear anybody. We have nothing to gain or nothing to add or, or whatever. And I do think that, you know, as is well, you know, argued in places, we live in a hostile environment. We really do. We may create in our homes, our bubbles. You know, I mean, COVID talked about a bubble. Sure, I've been living in a bubble all my life. My bubble has been either my wife, my children, my closest friends, family members, the ones I trust. You know, I always have a running joke with my colleagues at work. You know, I said, trust is a foreign land. You know, every now and again, I allow you to enter it. But until then, no, because it takes a long time for a lesbian or for a trans person, or for an intersex person, or a bisexual person, or a personal difference to actually trust that, what, that you will be taken as an individual in your own right, that you will be seen as an individual within your own right. And, you know, I think I was really struck as well by the OECD in 2019 when they said, and I thought this was really interesting, in 2017, only 1.4% of people before 1945 considered themselves as LGBT. You know, we talk about numbers all the time. Are we 10%, 5%, 7% of the population? Does it matter? We're here, we're queer, and we're staying, and we ain't going nowhere. And what's really interesting, because we have children that think we're going to, we're making queers, people forget that, you know, hell, we came out of cis families. You know, <laughs> they really didn't realize that, you know, we, we had the normative, you know, heterosexual environment, and it was alien to us. And yet, if we create our own environments, you know, uh, we're creating, inverted commas, little aliens, because they're, going, they're off populating their own environments, and they arrive out being themselves, whether that is heterosexual, whether that is lesbian, gay, transgender, whoever they find themselves being, they know they can become. And I think that may be different in a way. 2.4% among baby boomers, that's those of us between 46 and 64, only 2.4% of us thought we were gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual. 3.5% among the Generation X, that's the 65 to 79, and 8.2% amongst the millennials. This is really interesting. The more you see, the more acknowledgement that there is diversity, the more inclusive it becomes, the inverted commas, easier it may be to be yourself. And I think that is what we really need. But when we talk about healthcare and we talk about education, I came across this recently for a paper I was writing on older people. And really, really was interesting because things you don't think about of where heter heteronormativity exists. And one of the areas was O'Hara's paper in 2018 on the Dewey Decimal System. Librarians, they're wonderful. They're absolutely, everybody should have a librarian in their lives. Dewey, or O'Hara went and looked at the classification 
right? Don't forget, this Dewey Decimal System was 1876. So what she did was she tracked classification and the reclassifications over time. Now, what she find that the LGBTQ plus category ought to be considered a group of people. Hello, what are we? We're not people. We're back to being inhumans. You know, this, this is how, you know, the libraries have been, a system has been dealing with us, along with other groups of people. I presume they're the straights, the heterosexuals, the cis, that, that's what, I, no, they're not, they're the men. <laughs> Forget it, women doesn't exist in this, right? So the groups of people that we should belong to are the male group, in the sense that men were, were people, women aren't yet, uh, because that's what they're about. She explains that LGBT work are classified outside the groups of people, being men, which is the numerical category of 305S on library shelves. So all of us in libraries go over to your 305 and you'll find the group of people, right? Somewhere they allowed women in. So the reality of the LGBT classification is as follows. And I'm going to read from her. She says, LGBT groups of people first made it into the system in 1932 under the straight up offensive abnormal psychology well really at the end of the day i like being abnormal right because sometimes when i look at normal i go yeah okay not for me by 1989 they had been moved to the different offensive section social problems you know and uh our wonderful former president talked about women should be you know uh disruptives so social problems, I suppose, being a disruptive, I fit into my social problems. So I'm still all right on that shelf. So where are we now? And so she said, the good news is that the section themselves use modern, acceptable terms, and they're found in the section 306.7. Sexual orientation, transgenderism, intersexuality, all sit in 306.7. The bad news is that 306.7 sandwiches LGBT plus people between prostitution, child trafficking on the one side, fetishism and BDSM on the other. So what you can see is we're still looking at issues and not being seen within themselves. It is what sits within that category and that's what O'Hara is getting at. She says the classification of the LGBT community in an area dedicated to sex and surrounded by a whiff of deviancy she would argue that LGBT plus people should be classed in the 305S as a group of people because that is what they are. And I found that extraordinary. And it literally was by chance because I was being nosy and looking for something else and I came across this. And what this says is that for a young person, like no one like me going into the library, sure, look, we'll take it with a piece of salt and we'll be grand with it. But if you're a young person and you're going looking as a first year undergraduate student, you know, where I always say, you know, you're, you come up, let's decide to come up from the country across the, the divide of Dublin and then you come and you want to read something about yourself in a domain where ha having a book in your hands that might have lesbian on it or gay on it or transgender on it is okay because you're you, you're in a an environment where reading things is allowed but look where you have to go to find yourself that sells a message that's the kind of thing i'm at is what kind of message are we selling to young people and and i think in a way 
when we sell that message to young people, we're still at the attitudes and the beliefs that there's something not quite right about us. That there's something which I really can't put my finger on that, you know, says we're not quite there yet. And yet, if we look, because I know Rena spoke yesterday about children and families and the positioning in the Republic in relation to children and families, that there's still a long way to go. You know, um, maybe in a sense that we're lucky because we were in a situation, my wife gave birth, we went to a clinic and, you know, we did the donor seminary. So we were considered OK. But if you're a straight person, you can leave the country as a as a happily married heterosexual couple go somewhere you may participate in surrogacy and nobody asks the question not unless you yourself says something but if you are two gay men you can't so there's a huge problem in the way we treat difference within society in how we think about difference within society so we're othered on a number of levels. We're othered in the home at times, in education at times, and in health at times. And really, Pride Month is about a celebration of who we are. But when, in 2015, we obtained marriage equality and we sit within the, institute, the Constitution, we removed the parade of difference, the parade of pride, from the main thoroughfare of Dublin to the back streets. It was great. You gain equality and you're back down the back lanes where you spend most of your life. And it's almost like, you know, here you go, you've got your equality, what with you? And really, in a way, sitting in a constitution only allows you to breathe so far. You continuously have to give life to that constitution in every aspect. Of, of the organs of society by turning around and saying, if we're going to do, you know, sex ed at primary school level, because we do the, the fifth and sixth class, so that would be what, 12, uh, 11, 12, 13 year olds, we do the sex education. We, we cannot have, which we do have at the moment, uh, in the majority of schools, a, a Catholic organization going in talking about a gift from God. That is fine for your faith, for your belief system. You, you can be a gift from God, that's fine. But when you're talking about the body, when we're talking about menstruation, when we're talking about periods, when we're talking about growth and development, it is physiological. It is how bodies work. And we need to move it out of a faith-based understanding to a scientific evidence-based understanding, because that is the only way we're going to be able to emerge as fully human, fully understanding. And the other thing, particularly as a woman, I rail against the notion that young boys are moved out of classes when young girls have been, are being, you know, given an understanding of periods and what happens and all of their changes in their bodies as if it don't affect men. Well, you really can't talk about if you want to go to the, the normative way of thinking in relation to the egg and the sperm and how it lands there and remove and have the whole issue around menstruation removed from boys. So boys won't understand where the egg came from simply because they're not given an understanding of how a woman's body works. Neither are they given an understanding of 
of the menstruation, the shedding of blood, and why that happens. So there, there's so much in a way to be thought about and how we think about health, how we think about education, how we think about politics, and how we think about representation, and how we think about how young people see us. But there is one thing that um, Alexa stated, which really goes to the nub of growing old, is that when it comes to aging, that we, you know, the systems do not, you know, understand that, you know, if I'm a young queer, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to become an old queer with the hope that you no, know, the, the, the 69 bus doesn't come along and take me away, that I am going to age, I am going to grow old. So if I'm going to grow old, I'm going to need the healthcare, but I'm going to need inclusive healthcare. And uh, I don't want tolerance because I think, you know, well, look at, you know, dislike me is much better than tolerating me because, you know, tolerance in itself is, it's the same, to me, it's the same coin of dislike uh, bordering on hate. I'll put up with you because I have to put up with you. But like, you know, you know, really, you don't have to, you, you know, just walk away. It's much easier. But there are older people in our nursing homes who have gone back into the closet and who, you know, the dawning of the day of 2015 of marriage equality hasn't led to a better life for them, hasn't led to an ageing that it can be a quality of life where they can take themselves and die with dignity with the person that they love and the people they love sitting around them. And, you know, that is what we want. We want to die, we want to live with a quality of life, but we want to die with dignity and we want to die with the folk we like, we love, the families we have created around us, not the ones that others want us to have. And I suppose in that way, it, it just draws me back to the abiding memory I have of my father's death in a nursing home was I had been abroad and I flew in and the usual needed a letter for the insurance and whatever else. And I was asked what my married name was. And I just turned around and I says, well, I just decided I wasn't taking her name. And I could see my brothers looking at me going, it's not the time. Can you just stop doing these things? And I turned around and I said, but it's always the time. And the time is always now. And it's always everywhere we find ourselves because to not turn around and say, no, this does not apply to me is to say, I accept how you construct me. So I suppose in a way, advocacy, yes, activism. The moment you say I am to yourself, you have begun your journey of activism. Great. Thank you so much, Mom. Sorry to cut you off a little bit, but I just want to make sure we have some okay, time for, for questions and uh, comments from the audience. So if you have a question, I see there's already one in the chat function. If you have, if you're going to make an intervention, please also feel free to raise your hand. And as the chair, I'm going to get to abuse uh, my privilege and power to ask questions of the panelists that I have been kind of inspired by, by their, by their uh, interventions. And the first, uh, I'll direct, I'll, I'll say all three questions and then I'll, then I'll turn the floor over to the speakers. Um, Alexa, you mentioned a lot about how there's a unique set of stereotypes that come to the fore when it comes to trans women, that they're seen as predatory and invasive and a threat. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how that works or aligns with access to healthcare and discrimination women, trans women experience in healthcare. 
and how we need to understand the uniqueness of the stereotypes when we think about Article 5 of CEDAW and how it might influence um, healthcare. Marissa, I'm wondering from your presentation about where you see the work of NGOs and civil society groups like yourself being able to fit into the processes, processes of CEDA, so as to be able to bring that specificity um, and that sophistication and that nuance um, to the CEDA committee's outputs. And Mel, I'm going to I'm going to steal Joanne's quest, Joanna's question in the chat function, where she asks about um, whether there are um, examples of switching of successfully moving sex education from ideology to more um, science or to more human rights. Oh. And I, I see just in the chat in the quick Q and A question is a, a question I think directed more towards Alexa about the inclusion of trans men non gender binary in access to safe abortion. And just to kind of build on that question, I wonder if all of you could maybe comment on um, now your, your discussion about uh, the hostile environment. And when we think about gender-based violence, we're now moving to talk about gender-based violence committed by men. So I'm wondering if you could, you could all kind of talk or reflect on how the hostile environment or the heteronormativity, what CEDAW can do to sort of challenge that to ensure that all women are able to kind of enjoy their fundamental freedoms and human rights as, as CEDAW. Uh, aims to do. So Alexa, I will turn over the floor to you first to answer my questions. Of course. Um, yeah, so on, on the kind of stereotyping in particular trans women, how that kind of plays into medical discrimination, I mean it is essentially, um, there's a really good, um, uh, a really good kind of documentary, mini documentary thing on Netflix called Disclosure, which looks at um, the portrayal of particularly trans women in the media throughout the years so you know kind of looking back at like you know Chandler's parents and friends for instance and, and stuff like that and how those ideas have kind of informed and, and, and contributed to the discrimination against trans women in wider society how for instance cis men playing trans roles and, and, and cis men in particular playing trans women plays into the idea that actually trans women are just men dressing up as women and that's and you know it's it influences the culture in a way that you know people doing casting and stuff for these kinds of shows don't really don't really think about. Um, but but on the question of, of kind of medical discrimination, I think it's really important because the reality is that these stereotypes are built into the medical establishment. These the you know these psychiatrists and these assessors have a list essentially of, of things they have to take off um, in order to kind of confirm that someone is trans and that they are able to to get, you know provide them with gender affirming health care or whatever the case may be um, and some of those tick boxes include you know the, what I mentioned in terms of choosing a gender appropriate name and gender appropriate clothing um, forcing trans women to dress hyper femininely and present hyper femininely we constantly hear of people going to the gender identity service with a with a GIC suit um, or a GIC dress that they have that they wear to the clinic uh, for their monthly appointment um, because they feel the need to perform for their clinicians and it is a power thing it is a power thing uh, you know these these psychiatrists and psychiatric profession more broadly enjoys having power over the lives and experiences and bodies and and everything of, of trans communities and, and trans people um so i think that's it's really important there there's also you know there's other kind of assessment criteria that are built in based on stereotyping of of 
trans women in particular. So one of those is the idea that, you know, trans women are some kind of like hypersexual or hypersexualized um, kind of a, a subsection of the community. Um, you know, trans women have sex. This, this is, this, it happens, sure. But um, basically you have, you have essentially this kind of um, building in of an interrogation on how people have sex, how people enjoy sex, how, you know, whether people are tops or bottoms or, or whatever, um, and, and, you know, whether people prefer to be dominant or submissive in sex. These are questions that are asked by psychiatrists to trans people <clears throat> and uh, expecting that these questions to lead to the psychiatrist having a better understanding of that person's trans status or trans identity. And they are almost, you know, so, so many of them are based in these kind of outdated notions um, and these ideas of, of trans women as some kind of hypersexual objects. Um, so I do think that it's, you know, it's really important that we, we kind of look at the history um, of how trans women have been portrayed throughout the years and talked about in the media and look at how that has actually built itself into our structures because now we're getting as I, as I mentioned you know the anti-trans actors saying oh well look at those trans people they're reinforcing gender roles they're holding us back they're you know they're 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 not in favor of progress they're not feminists but we're actually being pushed into this by by the medical establishment by the by the healthcare system we're being forced to 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 live in role in this way um on the the question of um abortion access you know we've been doing some really good work with the abortion rights campaign in northern ireland or sorry the abortion rights campaign uh, in in ireland and uh, alliance for choice in northern ireland specifically um on this issue and on including including trans men and non-binary people in abortion services um and you know it's even just a, a thing of kind of changing language making sure that you know the actual the reproductive health care and reproductive justice organizations are saying the right things and, and you know, kind of um, are advocating for everyone's access to these services and not just, you know, cis women's. Um, so, you know, it is it is quite difficult to make the point that, you know, actually you do need to consider this. I would recommend for people looking for more information on this or for looking for like, you know, if you're if you're wanting to incorporate this into your lobbying or whatever, um, the University of Leeds and Dr. Ruth Pierce did an, a really, really good project called the Trans Pregnancy Project. Um, if you look it up at just trans pregnancy, I think dot org or something like that. Um, but it they did like a conference and some really good research and, and qualitative data um, on, you know, the importance of including trans men and non-binary people in issues of reproductive justice um, and in issues of, of abortion services. So I'd recommend having a look at that and just it, it, wherever you are engaging with trans communities on the ground, trans organizations on the ground um, to, to kind of um, to, to ensure that they are included um, in your local kind of advocacy. Thank you, Alexa. Uh, now, uh, Marissa, and I also see that Love Day. Marissa, I don't know if you would be well-placed because of your work um, doing interventions. Do you know if the committee has also made any interventions on conversion therapy? So I'll tack on another question to the, the two I already asked you. Okay, um, in terms of our role um, with NGOs, so we, Eurasia Pacific, we aim to focus um, with a more intersectional approach um, on centering the rights of marginalized women and communities into the political vision of CEDAW. So within a program we have known as Global to Local or G2L, we support women's rights groups and activists and other NGOs 
who wish to participate in the CDAR reporting process by providing them with mentoring on tactical and strategic advocacy, both virtually and in person at the CDAR Constructive Dialogue in Geneva. Well, not in this case now, however, we still provide the online support in terms of report writing. And since that um, the reviews will be happening online in June, June, yeah, um, we will be supporting NGOs in that process. So what we do is within our program is that we connect local NGOs and national level NGOs within this international space um, in terms of monitoring implementation of the CEDAW convention. And we also provide substantive engagement between activists and the CEDAW committee through organizing formal spaces um, created between us and the committee in order to brief them on the issues in country. Uh, we also assist uh, women's rights groups and um, other communities in terms of the, inter the articulation of their issues towards the accountability of states. And we contribute to them strengthening um, diverse movements um, within the global South. We also encourage and strengthen activism and policy change at the national level through our engagements. Um, and this is often done, well, normally done, but we have still been doing some virtually in terms of building the capacity and knowledge of communities in terms of CEDAW and what the process is like, but also how the CEDAW um, convention, how CEDAW can be effective in terms of their um, strategic lobbying and stutter on the ground. And it provides space, it, it also provides a space in terms of participants connecting to each other in terms of struggles and movements. And as Alexa um, said, um, that they would have went to CEDAW, I'm not sure when, but I am <clears throat> familiar from my colleagues that Alexa would have taken part in a CEDAW review a couple of years ago. And again, it actually helps in connecting persons with their struggles and movements um, across borders and helps them to embrace their connected struggles. And in terms of conversion therapy, I can't speak specifically to this because it's not at the top of my mind right now, specifically. So I can't say specifically to CEDAW, but I have heard um, previously mentioned um, within treaty bodies. Um, but I think that I have a colleague who's actually within this, oh, and she just commented in the chat who has um, given information saying that CEDAW has referred to conversion therapy a few times um, in the last list of issues from Ecuador in 2019, asking for um, detailed information on me measures for prevention of conversion therapy of persons. Um, so I'm very thankful for Ksenia for that because it wasn't at the top of my mind, apologies. But again, that is how ERAW specifically engages with civil society and activists um, is a huge part of our work. Um, yeah, the program is very important because um, not just so because CDR reviews are within four to five years, we can definitely say that within that time that communities either come back to us for, for capacity building, but they also come back in terms of wanting to report it again. And we have had um, success with groups in terms of the way in which the committee um, 
gives general recommendation that contributes to the ways in which policy is shaped in their countries. And one of those examples is Nepal in 2018. And yeah, we think that um, the way in which we also structure our program and give space for communities to engage and also reach out to us after has been very um, helpful in the way that communities view CEDAW and the space and how useful it can be. Thank you and thank you. Uh, that was perfect chat versus, uh, Zoom is amazing between chat and live function, live chatting, <laughs> it was like a perfect seamless handoff. I mean, couldn't find it better as an organizer. Uh, and lastly, let's turn to Mel. We have about only three minutes, three, four minutes left before the break. So I'll ask for kind of a, a quick intervention about uh, RSE and sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah, one, well, one of the ways school, particularly second level schools have gotten around it is when the, you get a pack in first year and the parents sign off on behavioral bonds and all of that, they include in the pack that is part of the schooling uh, that they, they do is the RSE program and the parents sign off on that. And once that's in it, there can be absolutely no engagement after that. And I think that works. Then they're, they're able to move it in and deal with it. In the research that we did on RSE and teachers, teachers, well, in the South, what the teachers are asking for is that, that they're given the, the that the state allows them to do it. Because at the moment, pending on the school they're in, pending on the faith of the school, can dictate what is happening. And that for them is what's happening. In relation to women's rights and, women, and trying to deal with issues of aggression and uh, intolerable behaviour towards women, it, it, it just strikes me that it begins from a very, very young age where all parents seem to be teaching their children and are teaching their children, in particular their girls, around unwanted touch and you know it, it starts we're even doing it here with four five-year-olds in junior infants as the star school if the stay safe programs talk talk about stay safe touch good touch you know making who can touch you who can't touch you and once you, you you're doing that and you're doing that with both boys and girls because of predatory behavior and things that were that that have been happening and the only thing we can do is call it out because we've had great examples at the moment in where, you know, uh, 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 sporting clubs support their own young men who, who have been uh, convicted of various sexual assaults. They're still getting, coming in and giving them character references and all of this. You know, uh, they were a team player, they were this, they were that and the other. Uh, and the, the young woman that they have assaulted somehow and uh, debased doesn't count in this narrative that other men are given to young men. And I think the problem is that sometimes older men and don't don't actually see that what is happening is not right. That it's almost like it's in their DNA. They grew up seeing this, so therefore they, they have never interrogated. And until we start that interrogation of behavior, we're never going to change it. And sadly, that's what I, I think we're doing with it. Thank you. The issues about sex ed are so, are so fascinating, particularly as they bring together questions about public-private schools, questions about religion, questions about parental control, questions about uh, what, what is the purpose of education, 
who gets to decide what it is, are there exemptions, are they legal, are they not, what's the role of law? So it, it's kind of an interesting microcosm for lots of cross-cutting themes about gender equality that come up in many, many different areas. So I see we've reached 3.15 and, and break time. So uh, I just wanna thank all the panelists for their wonderful interventions. You've all inspired us a lot here today to think about how we've used gender as a way to, to confine and to deny people who they really are and how we can work together as a legal activist political community to uh, use gender in a more constructive way to help people sort of live their most authentic lives and to be their, their true selves. So um, please join me in thanking our panelists for their wonderful interventions. And now we get a break, which is also uh, wonderful. And we can uh, return back at 3.30, uh, 3.30 UK time. So about 14 minutes and uh, depending on your time zone. And we will come back for our next panel, which is uh, we're gonna look at some very, very exciting cross-cutting issues about human rights and sexual orientation, gender identity. So thank you.